Well, good morning, church. I'm glad that you've chosen to join us this morning online. And we just want you to know that we're praying for you. We miss you and we love you as the church. And I just want to also say thank you for your, your kind and considerate donations throughout this time. And so would you just join me in prayer this morning before we get into the preaching of God's word. Father, we just thank you for your goodness even in this season. We thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for every soul that you've brought into this church, Lord. And I pray, Father, that they would sense the working of the Holy Spirit within their own lives. I pray, Lord, that they would be fed from the word of God, Lord. I pray, Lord, that they would feel the the desire to worship you as they hear these songs this morning, Lord. Draw us near to you, even though we are far apart this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us, but you are always with us. Father, give us wisdom in this season, Lord. Give us strength to continue to look to you, behold you, and not be deceived or lose focus in this season. Father, I do want to pray for those in the church who are going through struggles in this season, for those who are experiencing grief those who are experiencing the loss of loved ones through death again, Lord, would you be their comfort? Would you be their grace? Would you be their strength? May they sense your nearness, O Lord. Father, for those who are struggling with anxiety and depression and, and worry, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would cause them to turn to you and to look to you. And I would pray, Lord, that even in the preaching of the word this morning, that they would be caused through this to look to you and find their comfort in you. Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit work within our lives, Lord, as we give ourselves and submit ourselves to the preaching of the word. And that so that in this season in which you have placed us, and specifically in each location where you have us, that we would bring glory and honor to your name so that we might shine the sufficiency of God to a people who are lost and in darkness. So this morning, Lord, speak to us through your word. Open our eyes, fill our hearts, give us ears to hear so that you might be glorified through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Judges chapter 4 and 5. Now, as you're turning over there, let me just begin by saying this. I've, I've been told in the past that, that I speak too much about the sovereignty of God. Now, it's not that I shouldn't speak on it at all, but, but that when hearing it so often, we become numb to it and it begins to fall upon deaf ears. Now, as true as that may be, it's, there's no, it's not the reason why we should not preach it. You see, the thing is, God is the author of the Bible, and the preacher's call every week is to find and to state clearly, as clearly as possible, the intended meaning for God's people in his word as he dictates from the scriptures. You see, the preacher preaches not what he wants to preach. We don't preach what we want to hear, but what God intended for us to hear from his word. 
And in today's passage, you know, it would be really easy for me to simply focus on the two women in this passage and to really lift them up and exalt them. But here's the reality. Whether the, the story is about a man or a woman, God's intent in his book is that the people within the stories that relate to us, that they should not be the heroes of the story. Because you see, God alone is always the hero of his own story. And although the scriptures take us through the lives of many different people who fill the role of, of a hero, the intent is always to show that behind the scenes that God is the hero, not man. And so the intent of God's word is to always turn us back to the supremacy and the sovereignty and the sufficiency of God in all things so that we might live for his glory regardless of the season in which we live. Now in today's passage, I believe there are three truths that the Lord would have us learn from this passage the first one being that we ought to trust God because he is sovereign. Number two, that we ought to repent towards God because he is just. And number three, that we ought to bless God because he is worthy. Now, as we look at these two chapters, we we'll begin to see that chapter four kind of tells the story in a nutshell. But then the song in chapter 5, because chapter 5 is all a song, serves as a poetic commentary, filling in some of the gaps in chapter 4. So join me as we look into the first point of this sermon, and I'm going to have to lay out the entire story to get even the first point out. But the first point that we ought to learn is that we ought to trust God because he is sovereign. So looking at chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, here's what we read. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord, the Lord, notice that, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim, and then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So pause here for a moment. Here again, we see the whole cycle of sin continuing, revealing once again to us, even in our day, how weak we as humans are and our inability to remain faithful to the Lord in our own strength. And again, we see that because of Israel's sin as a nation, it's the Lord himself, the Lord who is sovereign and in control, who sells Israel this time into the hands of King Jabin, who's the king of Canaan. Now, Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, is an absolute terror to the people of Israel, and he oppresses them cruelly. For 20 years, and we'll see more about this later. But Josephus, the historian Josephus, tells us that Jabin had over 300 footmen, over 10,000 horsemen, and about 3,000 iron chariots in his army. Now, an iron chariot in that day would have been comparable to a tank when you compare it to the artillery that Israel's army had. You see, in chapter 5, verse 8, we read in Deborah's song that 
She says, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? You see, Sisera would confiscate any weapons that he would find among the people of Israel. And this, of course, would leave them vulnerable and defenseless. And in spite of this oppression from Sisera, and in spite of the fact that he was raiding them and stealing all their weapons, it still took Israel 20 years under this oppression to remember the Lord and to call out to him. Enter Deborah, or Deborah, depending on how you pronounce it. Continuing in verse 4, we read, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. Now she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So here we're introduced to this godly woman. We're told that she's the wife of Lapidoth. We're not told much about him at all, except that fact that she's married to him. We also see that she's a prophetess. Now, a prophet was one who spoke the revelation of God to the people of God. So by this, it's indicated to us that she had the spirit of God because the revelation came from God. And so this godly woman was raised up and began to judge the people of Israel. And people from all over Israel were coming to her to seek her wisdom, helping them decide matters of importance for them. Now let's continue on in verse 6 where we read this. And she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon. Now, I want you to remember that river because it's going to come in handy later on in the story. So Sisera, he will call out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Remember, Deborah comes and says, summons Barak and says, has God not said? In other words, God has already told you. He's going to give Sisera into your hand. And here's where it's going to happen. So God had called Barak to lead Israel's army to attack Sisera. And we're told here, God had told them already that he had given Sisera and his army into his hand. But now watch this in verse 8. We read, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Note Barak's response. Hey, lady, I am not going into battle unless you come with me. You don't come. I don't go. Isn't this interesting? She's not a soldier. She's a prophetess. And yet he says, I ain't going unless you come with me. 
Now, before we judge Barak on this, let's remember in practical terms that the odds were stacked against them. You see, Israel's army, scattered, had limited weapons with hardly a shield, while Sisera's army was stacked with the latest weaponry, chariots of iron, impenetrable with sword and spear. And the ability of this, they had, they had the latest bows and slings, and so Sisera's army could, have, could come onto them from a distance and attack at a distance, while Israel did not have that option and that pleasure. And so the odds really are stacked against Barak and Israel's army. But you see, here's the thing. God had called Barak not because of his ability, but in order to demonstrate God's supernatural ability and his power and his sovereignty over all creation. Now, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we would, to a man, have to agree that we are exactly like Barak. Are we not? You see, we're, we're often too afraid to even share the gospel in a group of unbelievers. We're often afraid to be, even be identified as a Christian in a group of unbelievers. We're often even afraid to do the right thing or the godly thing when surrounded by unbelievers because of what they'll think about us. And that's, and that's in, in the context of the situation where most likely nothing will happen to us except that we might be mocked. Uh, we, you know, people might disassociate with us. But now in Barak's situation, it's not just that he'll be rejected, but he's facing an army that's got the latest weaponry when he and his army have next to nothing. And the mistake that Barak makes, that we make, is that instead of trusting in the Lord, who had already stated that he had given Sisera and his army into the hands of Barak, he instead puts his trust in Deborah. I won't go unless you come with me. Because you see, I think he recognizes, he realizes that she is a prophetess and God is with her. And I'm not sure I'll really have the victory unless she comes with me because God will listen to her. So he's put his faith and his trust in the wrong person. He should have put it in the person and in the deity of God himself. Instead, he puts his faith and his trust in Deborah. You see, the issue is that, is that Barak has forgotten how miraculously God brought Israel out of Egypt and what he did to Egypt, how he, how he held the Egyptian army from them with a pillar of fire, how God ultimately and utterly destroyed Egypt's army in the Red Sea, destroying them all. 
He's just looking at the here and now. He's looking at his limited ability instead of trusting in God's sovereign ability. So this is what you and I are so often guilty of as well. But let's look at the outcome of Barak's failure to trust in the all-power, sovereign, powerful, sovereign God. Continuing on in verse 9. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. You see, the people have come to the point where it's better to die or to trust God than to continue living in the conditions that they're in. So they're willingly giving themselves at this point. But because of Barak's failure to trust God, to recognize God's sovereignty, Barak would not be the one to receive the glory of this victory. He would not be the one to defeat Sisera. God would do that at the hand of a woman who was not in the military or a soldier. Now, continue on in verse 11. We're introduced to a new character here. Now, Heber or Heber, the Kenite, had separate separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zenanim, which is near Kadesh. And so just a quick little glimpse here. The camera just pans, pans to and gives us a different angle, a different shot really quickly of someone who factors into the story, but in a way that at this point we don't not yet not know how or why this information is relevant. But Heber is a Kenite, uh, he's from the clan of the Kenites, and, and the Kenites are the descendants of Moses' in-laws. And they joined Israel in their wilderness journey to the promised land. Now, we're just going to leave it there for a moment, and we'll come back to them later. Just keep that in your mind. But anyway, word gets out, and King Jabin's general Sisera gets word that Barak and Israel's army have gone up to Mount Tabor. And hearing this, Sisera immediately rises up, takes a degree or a number of his army, and heads out to the mountain. Because you see, here's what's interesting. From Sisera's perspective, this is a great setup to attack Israel at Mount Tabor. Because you see, Mount Tabor, and you can find pictures of this online even to this day, is a single domed mountain. It's just, it's this lone mountain that finds itself stranded in the flatlands. And it's not a massive, massive mountain, but it's small enough that all of Sisera's army can surround the mountain so that if Israel comes down, they can easily just pick off Israel's soldiers one by one and there's no escaping. So when Sisera gets word that they're up on this mountain, 
He calls out 900 of his iron chariots and along with foot soldiers and horsemen and they set off to destroy Israel's army. And when Deborah sees Sisera approaching from on top of this mountain, she tells Barak, get up. This is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. And she, she gently encourages him with this other tidbit of information. Does not the Lord go before you? Remember Moses' prayer when Israel came out of Egypt. Lord, we will not go. I will not go unless you go before us. And here Deborah is reminding him, remember, isn't the Lord going before you? The mighty fortress who is your God is marching ahead of you as a wall. And so as they watch down off of the peak of this mountain and they, the soldiers barge down, 10,000 of Israel's soldiers come with him towards Sisera and his mighty army. Let's keep reading in verse 15. We read, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. So it's interesting that we don't get more detail as to how this battle unfolded or what precisely the Lord did. We're told that the Lord routed Sisera. Now this is a bit of a complex Hebrew word, but the meaning is that he, he threw them into confusion, into derision. He, he unsettled them. So the question is, well, what actually happened? Well, remember, all the way back in verse 7, the Lord said that he would cause Barak and his army to meet Sisera and his army at the bottom of the mountain by a river called the Kishon River. Remember that. Because now, with that in mind, with the, as they race off this mountain, there's this small little river at the bottom. Now look at chapter 5, verse 13, and we read this. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. The me is Deborah. Then verse 14, from Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Now, chapter 5, verse 20, and from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on. Remember, this is a song, but it, it gives us a commentary or greater detail as to what happened. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about the Kishon River. The Kishon River at this location was honestly not much wider than Catfish Creek here in our local area. 
And that should tell us something. Catfish Creek is by no means a threatening river. It's, it's more of a, a laxed, relaxed stream. It can be 15, 20 feet wide, and the water can be two, three feet deep at most, and so it was with this river. Um, we're told, actually, when researching on this river that at most the water might be a meter deep, um, and in flood season, two meters, but even in the summer season, the river can run almost completely dry. And so it was in this moment when Sisera and his army came marching towards the, the Kishon River. It was in the dry season, not much water, so it was a perfect setup for his army to get across and to attack Israel. Now, here's what happened. We read in chapter 5 that the torrent of Kishon swept Sisera and his army away. Well, what are we to make of this? You see, stepping out of Scripture and into the recorded works of Josephus, the Jewish historian, he records what happened on that day. As the two armies approached and were preparing for impact, the initial attack, at that moment, an intense storm broke out with torrential rain and hail with such force that Sisera's armies couldn't even use their bows or their slings. Because the rain and the hail would impede both the stones and the arrows, making these weapons utterly useless. Furthermore, as the rain poured, it caused this flash flood. And the dry ground very quickly absorbed all the water, and the chariots sank in the mud, rendering them useless because they were stuck. And this happened so quickly that it allowed Israel's army, who did not have chariots, but mainly sword and spear, to kill many of Sisera's army while they were still stuck in their chariots and not able to get out. And Sisera's army was so stunned at the events and with their defenses down, the only option for them was that every man had to flee for himself. You see, we don't hear much about the story ever. But this story is as miraculous and as astounding as anything else God did for Israel on their way to the promised land or even in Egypt. But here's the thing, God's not done yet. See, God is showing to Barak, I'm in control. I've got power, right? Watch me overcome your enemy. Look at chapter 4, verse 17, and we read, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. So now we come back to this couple again. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. You see, Heber the Kenite, who was the descendants of the in-laws of Moses, had taken the Kenites. They moved into their own camp. They were tent-dwelling people. And they had both peace with Israel and had accomplished to, to achieve peace with King Jabin. 
And so they had peace on both sides. And Sisera now has fled on foot. And he knows that when he comes into this territory of the Canaanites, that he is safe, that he will not be pursued. Now let's read furthermore in verse 18. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him. And she drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Now there is so much that could be said about this event right here. But for the sake of time, I need to keep moving. I just want to say this, as we look at this story of the sovereignty of God, his sovereignty is brightly on display as the noonday sun on a clear day. You see, Barak didn't trust God in his sovereignty. So God teaches him a lesson. Barak it's not in your ability, but it's in mine and what I will do. And so God teaches him this lesson, and God calls upon the heavens to release its rain and its hail, and they do God's bidding. Think of this. God used rain and hail and mud to disarm and render a mighty, fearful army utterly useless and to throw them into chaos. Furthermore, God used a tent peg in the hands of a housewife to kill the most feared, brutal military leader of their time. And she gave him a splitting headache as she pinned him to the ground. You see, in this story, God has put his sovereignty on bold display. Do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we trust him? If he's not sovereign, how could you trust him? But God continues to display it again and again and again. And here in this story, we see it once more. Barak, it's not, your, it's not because of your ability it's because of who I am and my ability as a sovereign God over all things. 
Do we trust him? Are you trusting God in this season? Is fear, worry, anxiety confining you because of the unknowns as to everything that's going on? Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign even in this. He is sovereign. So fear not. Look to God and live. Having come all the way through the story and revealed the first truth that God would have us learn, to trust him because he is sovereign, the second truth I believe God would have us understand is our need to repent toward God because he is just. You see, although the king of Canaan was Jabin, the emphasis in the story falls on his commander of his army, Sisera. Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, is an absolute terror to Israel. And he oppresses them cruelly for 20 years. He, he oppresses them to such a degree that we read in chapter 5 again that the highways were abandoned. Because you see, to run into Sisera on the road meant the very likelihood of being stripped of your valuables as tributes to him and to Jabin. And to resist him was often met with torture or even death. Furthermore, we read in chapter 5 that the villages ceased to be in Israel. You see, villages were often nothing more than just people living in tents. And these, these small villages were often pillaged by Sisera. And so people just abandoned their villages altogether and went and sought shelter in bigger cities or in secluded places, hoping not to be found by Sisera. And now, chapter 5 teaches us more about this character. In, in chapter 5, verse 30, Deborah gives us the perspective of, of Sisera's mother, who is in a sense, watching and looking for Sisera to come home from battle again. And we read in verse 30, have they not found and divided the spoils? You see, the, the, the belief is that Sisera never really was defeated in a battle. And so he was very arrogant, prideful, and he was a brutal, brutal, vicious man. He goes on and we read, a womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered with pieces of dye. Dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Now this is very poetic and so it makes it a little more difficult to understand. But remember it's a song. But it does help us see a little more clearly as to what or who this man was. And history tells us that whenever Sisera and his army pillaged a village, they would often kill the men 
and they would abuse and rape the women or take them home as personal possessions. It was unadulterated sin and wickedness. He was free to do so. There was no one that could hold him accountable. But you see, God who is just does not overlook the sins of people. Instead of allowing Sisera to die an honorable death in war at the hands of another general or a mighty soldier, God actually brings dishonor upon him by having him put to death at the hand of a woman. Because you see, in those days, it was an act of dishonor to be killed by someone who, first of all, was not a soldier, but secondly, it was even more dishonoring when it was a woman. So now, now just look at this for a moment here. You see the, 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 the justice of God. Cicero was put to death by the village people whose lives he had destroyed for 20 years without care or concern. But more specifically, he was killed by a woman, a gender he had so viciously and wickedly abused. You see, God is just. And in this story, Sisera is a depiction of the person who indulges in all their sinful pleasures at their heart's content with no care or concern for anyone else. It's about meeting your own needs. And God's judgment and wrath upon Sisera is God's judgment revealed. And we see that God is a God of perfect justice. But here's the thing we need to also recognize. God's justice does not end at physical death. Death is only the door leading to eternal judgment where sin is punished under the righteous wrath of God in the fires of hell for all eternity. So you see, you and I and anyone else listening, we need to understand the importance and the need to repent from sin towards God because God is just. You see, Romans 12, 9, we read, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Furthermore, we read in Romans 2, 5 through 8, where we read, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Mark these words. Take heed and listen to them. 
You see, we cannot afford to neglect the importance of repentance towards God. Now, the word repentance means to turn away from the lifestyle of sin and by faith submit to God and by his strength live a life of righteousness. But here's the thing. If you've never repented of your sin and turned towards God, your wrath awaits, your judgment awaits. And I encourage you this morning to look to Jesus, repent from your sin, turn to Jesus, and you will be saved. God's wrath awaits the unrighteous and the unbeliever. And unless you turn to Christ, you will experience the full wrath of the judgment of God who is just. But God, in his compassion, has provided a way of escape. He sent Jesus, who absorbed the wrath of God that you and I had earned because of our sin and our unrighteousness. And he invites you to repent. He invites you to turn from your sin towards God and by faith receive the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ so that you might receive the gift of eternal life. Call on Jesus today. Do not wait. He is compassionate. And all those who call upon him, he will not turn aside. Call on him today. Now the third element I believe we need to grasp in, is in these two chapters is that we ought to bless God because he is worthy. You see, all of chapter 5 is a song blessing God. Now, to, to bless God means to recognize God in all that he is, in all that he does, and to verbally express our gratitude and our delight in him. And yes, you can delight in God when by faith you turn to Jesus Christ. Through him we delight in God. And, and this song in chapter 5 speaks of the event that happened in chapter 4. But it clearly acknowledges throughout the song the sovereignty of God in that he was actually working behind the scenes and sovereignly to make it all work out. We see this at the beginning of the song in verse 3. We, we read this, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. So here we see them beginning to bless God, both Deborah and Barak. And she says, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. But she's telling, okay, perk up your ears, kings and rulers and princes. Listen up, because I'm going to sing to the Lord. And then they acknowledge 
the terrifying might of the Lord. And not just in the present circumstance, but they even bring in the past. Verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So now she's exalting God. She's exalting him in all his might and his power that even the heavens and the earth would tremble and shake. And again, they recognize God's sovereignty in all of this again in the middle of the chapter, verse 11, referring to everything that they had accomplished, listen, as the righteous triumphs of the Lord. Deborah recognized it's not in our ability, it's not in our strength, not in our might, it's in God's. And so these are the triumphs, the victories, the righteous triumphs of the Lord. And then we see it again at the end of the song when once again they bless the Lord saying in verse 31, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Church, even in this season, there is reason for us to bless God and not lose hope. What we saw even in the songs at the beginning was that Deborah and Barak even looked back to when God brought them out of Egypt and took them through the wilderness and at the Mount Sinai and they showed the power of God when even the heavens and the earth shook and the power of God that, that witnessed them or remained with them throughout that journey. And that's what we ought to do when we don't find the joy and the hope in God in this season. Look back and remember. Remember what God has done in the past. And although God did these for the people of Israel, these are the stories of the church. God will do this for his people. Even when it seems, when everything looks like it's coming to a dead end, Remember, God in his sovereignty, as we saw in this story, is able to use all things for his glory. So despair not. Don't fear. Think back, remember, of God's righteous victories, his righteous triumphs. The question is, will we learn and find the way to bless him in this season? Can we in this season make him and his power known? Even if we don't see it in this moment at this time, but we see it when we look back and we know that God is still sovereign and he is still using all things for his honor and his glory. You see, we ought to trust God. That's what we learned in this passage. We ought to trust God because he is sovereign. And God has demonstrated that time and again throughout the scriptures. And he is sovereign even today. There is no one above him. There is none that can rival or challenge him. So let us find and put our trust in him. In the story, we've witnessed the justice of God. 
And we know that he will punish sin justly. And so I want to encourage you today, if you have never repented of your sins, would you repent today and call upon him? Because no sin will go unpunished. And when we repent, we can then turn and we can bless the Lord. We can rejoice in who he is and what he has done and what he will do for his people. So let us bless the wonderful name of God even in this season when we have no clue as to how things are going to turn out. We can still praise him. We can lift up the beautiful name of our God. We can lift up his name knowing that he is all-powerful and he is mighty to save and none can rival him. So let us worship God. Let us bless him and make known the mighty power of our God. May we worship God in this season. Father, we pray. There's so much here that's been laid out for us so clearly and so powerfully, Lord. And I pray even in this season, Lord, as we look at this story, we would see clearly your mighty hand of sovereignty and that we can trust you, Lord. And we see that you will use all things for your glory. We see, Lord, that you will punish sin because you are a just God. And I pray, Lord, that we will find comfort in that. So we know, Lord, that although things seem like they're falling apart, in the end, your will will be perfectly accomplished. So give us hope, Lord. Open our eyes to see the wonder of your glory and of the power of your might. Even if we don't see it in this season, but when we look into your word, we look at the past, we see it on the pages of scripture, real events of how you manifested your sovereignty. I pray, Lord, that we would find comfort in your sovereignty. I pray, Lord, it would allow us to sleep at night. And I pray, Lord, that it would give us joy that even though we don't see the outcome of, the, of our current present day situation, that we would be able to bless your name and to lift you up and to glorify you and to make known your righteous victories. Lord, fill your people with your Holy Spirit. Give them joy so that we might glory in your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.